sometimes, honestly, as a pastor, I can tell you that the Bible can be confusing. Like, sometimes I read it, and I'm like, like, sometimes I read it, and it's like a passage about Jesus, loving people, and I'm like, I get this. This is great. And then other times I read it, and I'm like, what? And I, like, kind of squint. I'm like, what did I just read? I'm going to go read something about Jesus now, because this is confusing. Studying for this message felt like writing a term paper for me. Um, it felt like being in school, because honestly, when I first read it, I didn't get it. And I was like, I don't want to just get up and like fake it and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. I have to actually be a student of the Bible and study it. So to set the stage for us to comprehend this passage, this message, which I've called Sign of the Times, we're going to hear from the great prophet Harry Styles, who said famously, just stop your crying. It's a sign of the times. Welcome to the final show. Hope you're wearing your best clothes. You can't bribe the door on your way to the sky. You look pretty good down here, but you ain't really good. Actually, that's not our focus. It's not Harry Styles, and he wasn't a prophet. We're actually gonna quote the prophet Joel, okay? So, here's the actual quote for today. Acts 2, verse 19 through 20. Joel the prophet said this in the Old Testament. Peter is quoting it here. He says, I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds and smoke. The sun will become dark, the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. How are you guys doing? I read this and I'm just like, what? Blood moons? What? Like, what is this? Like, I don't know if you're that way, but like, sometimes we can read the Bible and we just gloss over it. We're like, oh yeah, of course, it's in the Bible. I read it and I'm like, what is it talking about? Last Sunday, to set the stage for what we're doing, we talked about Pentecost. If you don't know what Pentecost is, so here's the stage, okay? Jesus dies, lives this perfect life, dies for our sins, rises again, and then the disciples are left behind. They're the ones that Jesus says, now you go and do the work. But then Jesus says, before you can do the work, you gotta wait for something. It was what? Holy Spirit. They had to wait for God's Spirit to show up before they could do anything good. And so, on the day of Pentecost, which is what we've been studying the last couple weeks, Peter and the disciples are in this upper room and they're praying and then the Holy Spirit falls on them in this crazy moment where all of a sudden little balls of fire appear over their head. They start speaking in tongues. They start going out into the streets and just proclaiming the gospel in all these different languages. And the next thing you know, this huge crowd of people from all over the world, Jews from all over the world, are listening to this message and they're getting saved. They're getting impacted. And so right now, we're in the middle of Peter's message. Peter the apostle, he stands up in front of a crowd. Peter who used to be a coward, remember? Peter who one time denied Jesus. At one time, he was a guy who literally like, didn't have enough faith to stand up for Jesus in public and he denied the Lord and ran away and hid. Now he's standing up in a public place in front of thousands of people proclaiming the gospel. Wednesday, we were at the house and we started to look at this message. This is actually the first sermon. This is the first message, the first message of Christianity delivered by a disciple. Peter is delivering this huge message in front of a crowd and in his message, he's talking to Jews. And so who does he quote? Someone from the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Joel. Now, 
On Wednesday, we focused on the first part of Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes, which is about how one day the Holy Spirit was gonna fall down on God's people. That's what Joel said. One day, God's Spirit is gonna fall down on people and fill them to the point where they will have God's Spirit. His Spirit will be poured out on all people. Today, we're gonna look at a part where Peter gets kind of weird and starts talking about bloody moons. So let's read it again. Um, There it is. So... It's behind me. I'll just read it on here. I will cause wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below. Actually, back it up to verse 16. So Peter's saying, what you see here, Joel predicted it. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And then verse 19, I will cause wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn to blood red on that great and glorious day before the Lord arrives. This brings up like all sorts of questions for me. One, why is the moon turning blood red? Or even like to blood, like not just the color red, why is the moon turning to blood? Two, what is the day of the Lord? And three, when is this happening? Should I be worried? Like should I be building a blood moon bunker to protect me from the moon bleeding on me? What's going on? So today, we're gonna try to answer some of these questions. Are you with me? I know it's early, but are you with me? Yeah? Yes, okay. So, here's the first question. The first question is, what's the deal with the blood moon? Like, what is that about? When I read it, it sounds super confusing because I've seen the moon turn red before. It's a scientific phenomenon. I've never seen the moon actually turn to blood. So what is the Bible saying? Well, is it saying that the moon is gonna turn red like during a solar eclipse? Is it, gonna, is it gonna turn into literal blood and just start bleeding everywhere? What is going on? This is a part of the Bible called eschatology. If you've never heard the term eschatology, it's the study of the end times. And I'm just gonna be honest, eschatology is not my strong suit. I am kind of like a kingdom of God guy. I love talking about the gospels. I love talking about Jesus. I love talking about evangelism. I love talking about how we can see Jesus throughout the whole story of the Bible. Those are kind of like, that's, that's like my wheelhouse. Like that's where I feel like I'm good when I preach. When it comes to eschatology, the end times, I've always been one of those guys where I'm like, I mean, I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe he's gonna rapture us and take us away from the earth before he starts causing some tribulation. Um, but you know, when it's gonna happen, how it's gonna happen. I've always been one of those guys where I'm like, you know what, I mean, I'm just gonna wait and see how it all pans out. But eschatology is definitely important. Some of you guys are like already lost. You're like, Sunday morning, you're like, I don't want to listen to this. Well, you're here, so here we go. Here's the first thing you gotta understand. This is the first thing I want you guys to understand, okay? So Peter, he is speaking to Hebrews who know their Bible. He's a part of a Jewish culture, and so he's using like language and illustration that comes from their culture. A lot of times when you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, what we do as like 2017 Western Americans, what we do is we try to like read our own ideas and culture into the Bible, you know? So, um, you know, we read a, a verse where it's like, you know, follow the Lord and he'll bless you. And we're like, oh yeah, that means God's gonna get me like the best car and the best girlfriend and the best house. And like we're reading our own ideas into the scripture when maybe that's not what the Lord's talking about. So in the same way, we can come to this passage and kind of read our own ideas into it. You have to understand he's not writing to Americans in 2017. Peter is speaking to Jews from around the world 
just a few short years after Jesus' death. So no wonder it's kind of a little confusing to us. Like imagine you were like some kind of tribal jungle dweller and an American appears to you in the jungle and is like, I come in peace. And then he starts saying a speech and he's like talking to you about how he comes in peace. And then he's like, I'd like to now quote John Stafford Smith. And he starts quoting John Stafford and he's like, oh say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail with the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Like, you would be sitting there in the jungle, you'd be like, I, I, there, there, there's a flag, and there's, there's gonna be rockets, like what's, what are you talking about? You, you see what I'm saying? Like, for us reading this passage, we're, we're kind of like those jungle dwellers where it's like, wait, there's gonna be a bloody moon and like darkness and crazy. Like what, what are we talking about here? So here's the thing. The problem with this is when we don't understand the culture and when we don't understand scripture, how the whole Bible ties together, a lot of times we can misinterpret things. Like if you're in that jungle, you might be like, does this guy, he says he's coming in peace, but I feel like he wants to like shoot rockets at us and like wrap us up in a flag or something. Um, here's the reality. Peter's crowd, they understand why he's quoting Joel. These are Jews. They've studied their Bible. They know it. So when Peter pulls out this Joel passage, it would make as much sense to them as it would if someone started quoting the national anthem to us. So to understand it, we're going to have to do some Bible geekery here. We're going to have to like dig into Scripture and look at the original meanings. I hope you're excited about that. I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm, I love Bible nerd stuff. I hope you do too. So Peter, here and before he is talking about the great day of the Lord. You know what? We're tired. Everyone say it with me. The great day of the Lord. Thank you. Wow. Love, love the passion over there. Okay. So here's what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord was something every Hebrew boy and girl would know about. They would have grown up hearing about how one day there was going to be this great day of the Lord. However... It's not something that we in the American church talk about a lot. We talk the most in the American church about dying and going to heaven. That's like our main focus in the American church is you get saved and then it's like, oh, I wanna go to heaven. But at the Hebrews, they talked a lot about something called the day of the Lord and it's found all throughout the Bible. So to help us understand, I am going to play a video from the Bible Project because they do a much better job than me explaining it. If you're on Wednesday, you watch this video with us, we're gonna watch it again and hopefully it'll absorb into your brain even more. So here is the Bible Project's video on the day of the Lord. Oh, the volume's gone. Tyler, do you wanna turn on that? Volume. There we go. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible. But to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. 
which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward, and he's swallowed up by death. Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb. It's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well. We keep building new versions of Babylon. 
Right. And so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it. Armageddon. Final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil? Well, that's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. Super good. How you guys doing? Glorious? Okay, if you're wondering, like, why am I teaching this message? Why am I trying to share this with you? Here's the reason, okay? So statistics are showing that right now in the American church, we have a huge problem, and it's called biblical illiteracy. And basically, the statistics are showing that young people and adults, basically, like in our modern age, are reading the Bible less and less. They're relying on basically just pastors to tell them what's true, and no one is studying the Bible for themselves. Maybe that hits home. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, I haven't like read my Bible in like months. Um, that's a huge problem that we have. And the bigger problem, too, is people do not understand the Bible. They don't understand the story of the Bible. They don't understand the context. And so the reason I want you guys to understand this is I want you to understand biblical concepts. I think you guys are mature. I think you can handle it. I think you guys are intelligent. So I want to throw this stuff at you. So to recap, like, the question is, what is the day of the Lord? And the short answer is, it's the day when God defeats evil and makes everything right. So it's important to understand, there's actually many days of the Lord in the Bible. So, like, think of it this way. Um, you have had many birthdays, but there was one day that was the day you were actually born. Does that make sense? Many birthdays, but one actual birthday. So in the same way in the Bible, there's been many days of the Lord where God shows up to deliver people. God shows up and he defeats evil, but there's gonna be one day where God shows up and finally defeats evil for good. Um, here's an example of a past day of the Lord. We have Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. That was a day where the Egyptians were coming after God's people and God showed up, he parted the waters of the Red Sea, crashed them onto the enemies, God showed up and overcame evil and freed his people. And the Israelites, like we saw in the video, referred to that day as the day of the Lord. Um, this was the day of the Lord for the people at that time. However, all of humanity is waiting for like the big epic day of the Lord. There's gonna be a day of the Lord that ends all days. It's gonna be a day where Jesus removes the evil from this world. When I grew up in church, I thought of the story of the Bible as being only about heaven and hell. Did you know that the phrase heaven and hell is barely found in the Bible? I'm not saying that hell is not a real place. It is. I'm not saying that heaven is not a real place. It is. But we only tend to think of it as the story is about heaven and hell. 
the Bible actually says the phrase heaven and earth together so many more times than heaven and hell. C.S. Lewis said that matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. Did you know that when you go to the final destination, you're not gonna be some disembodied spirit baby floating around. You are going to have a body, a resurrected body, living in a physical world, going on adventures with one another and Jesus. It's gonna be fantastic. We don't normally think of this. We think of heaven as like this fluffy cloud land. It's not. So think of our world, okay? Our world right now is covered in darkness. Jesus wants to free the world of darkness. One day, we are going to live in a world that Jesus is going to recreate that is going to be free of all evil, all racism, all sexism, all war, violence, abuse, these things that we read in the newspaper every day that we hate and it makes our heart go, oh, this is wrong. No more gossip. No more broken friendships. No more broken families. It's going to be this perfect place to live. He's going to make a world that retains all of the goodness Okay? When God made the world, he called it good. So there's going to be a world with goodness, but all of the evil Jesus is going to remove. That is going to be the great day of the Lord. It's the day that Jesus defeats evil once and for all and restores creation back to how it was always meant to be. When we live in a mindset where we say, you know, the physical doesn't matter, it's only about the spiritual, you know what that's called? It's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. So turn to your person on the left and say, stop being such a Gnostic. We do. I can be a Gnostic sometimes where I'm like, oh, you know, nothing matters. It's all going to burn, you know. Matter, like C.S. Lewis said, matter matters to God. We are going to live in a physical, spiritual reality, the new heaven, the new earth. Um, so this final day of the Lord, I like to also think of it as Star Wars. So in Star Wars, you've got evil, right? The Death Star. The Death Star appears in Star Wars, A New Hope. So then the Jedi have a day, right? The Jedi blow up the Death Star. Luke Skywalker shoots the torpedoes down the air ventilation, the air conditioning system. I don't know, something like that. Um, that's the day that the Jedi strike. So then in Return of the Jedi, there's another Death Star. And then the Jedi have another day, and they blow it up. And then... <laughs> In The Force Awakens, because creativity is dead, I guess, there's like, it's like, oh, we'll have a Death Star, but it's an even bigger Death Star. And then they blow that up. But I'm sure the Jedi long for the day when the evil Sith are completely removed from the galaxy. Most of you guys are like, you're a nerd. Get off the stage. Okay. So anyway, now remember, the prophet Peter is quoting, or Peter's not a prophet. Yeah, he is. Peter is a prophet because he's speaking on the behalf of God. That's a bonus one for you. You can speak prophetically. We've been talking about this. With the Holy Spirit in you, you can actually go to, like, let me just demystify prophecy really quick, okay? We think of prophecy, prophecy as like, oh, this big mystical thing. If God says to you, hey, I've got something that you need to go tell your friend, and you're like, okay, God, I'll do it, and you walk over to your friend, you're like, hey, break up with that guy. No, I'm just kidding. But you're like, hey, Date that guy. No, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever God tells you to do, to say. If you are obedient and you say what God puts on your heart, you're actually speaking prophetically in that moment. So bonus one for you there. So the prophet Joel, though, Peter is quoting. How many of you guys know the backstory of Joel? Anybody here know the backstory of Joel? Neither did I. So, oh, you do? Brant? Do you remember what, the, what was the main bad thing happening in the book of Joel? He had to live in a cave? No, that's Elijah. I'll help you out. It was a plague of 
Who said locusts? Anybody? Yeah, it was a plague of locusts. So in the book of Joel, Israel, like Brant said rightly, is doing bad stuff. They are living in a time of rebellion, just like, just like we talked about in the book of Judges. And then the prophet Joel is talking about a day of the Lord. He says, remember when God sent those locusts to attack Egypt? Well, now God's sending the locusts to attack us. And these locusts were like giant grasshoppers, and they would rip through their crops and destroy their farms. It was punishment from God. He did it to Egypt, but now he's doing it to Israel because they're in sin. So that was a past day of the Lord. Then Joel talks about a future day of the Lord. He says, Israel, if you don't repent, God is going to send an army into your town just like a plague of locusts ripping through, but instead of your crops, it's gonna be destroying your lives. God was going to allow, see, God doesn't necessarily cause bad things to happen to us, but the enemy always wants bad things to happen to us, and sometimes God can lift his hand of protection and allow those things to happen, especially if we're in a season of our life where we're rebelling against him. Sometimes he allows us to go through trials because he wants to show us how much he loves us and wants us to come back to him because he knows that we are going to be like, here's the thing. Just, this is also, this isn't in my notes, but just, I think it's something we need to get in our head. If your life is going great, but you don't have Jesus, you're actually worse off than if your life is going terrible, but you do have Jesus. Because in the end, if you die and you don't have Jesus, what is there? There's no heaven. It's hell. You can have the best life in the world, but if there's no Christ in your life, then this life is short. Like, this, this is a short, short existence. In the end, what matters is Christ in your life because he is how we enter into the new world. So anyway, Joel is predicting this future day, and he's saying, Israel, if you don't repent, an army is gonna come in like locusts. Natural disasters also happen on this day. He's saying, if on this great day of the Lord, there's going to be earthquakes, and the sun will grow dark, and the earth will shake. And in Joel chapter 2.11, he says, the day of the Lord is horrible. Who can endure it? And the message of the book of Joel is repentance. Joel is a prophet who says, listen, you are bringing this on yourself. When you sin, you are bringing destruction on yourself. God is lifting his hand of protection and you're allowing sin to come into your life and destroy you. Repent, turn from the Lord. That was Joel's mission as a prophet, to get people to repent, to warn them about the day of the Lord and to show them that by rejecting God's love and mercy, they were letting destruction come into their life. And it works. The people repent. The people are like, he's right. We do need God in our life. And they repent and they turn to the Lord. And then in Joel chapter two, he tells people about the effects of their repentance. He says, listen, your repentance is bringing something new. It's allowing God to do what he wants to do. And he, and he prophesies. Joel gives this prophecy about the final day of the Lord. And he, he talks about the future. He says, one day, God's spirit is gonna fall on his people. That's the prophecy that Peter quotes. One day, this is hundreds and thousands of years before Peter even existed, the prophet Joel was prophesying that one day God's spirit would come and give people new hearts and new spirits. They would transform them. And then he talks about a future day of the Lord. Um, a future day of the Lord where... It's not in my notes, but um, basically it's a future day of the Lord where God will come and just wipe out all of evil. God will come and defeat the evil armies. God will come and wipe out every sin and destruction and evil thing on this planet. A future day of the Lord, the final one where God defeats all evil. 
And by doing this, when God defeats all evil, he restores earth back to the way it was always meant to be, just like in the Garden of Eden, a place where God can be with his family. So the question is, what is Peter saying? When Peter like quotes Joel, when he's standing on the stage and he starts quoting the prophet Joel, why is he saying this? Well, he's trying to tell the crowd, listen, God's spirit falling, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of something new that God is doing. You're gonna see crazy things. You're gonna see God's spirit coming on people, people speaking in tongues, people getting saved. You're gonna see amazing things, and then Jesus is gonna return, and when Jesus comes back, just like Joel said, you're gonna see crazy stuff in the sky. You're gonna see uh, the sun blotting out. You're gonna see the moon turn to blood in that final day of the Lord. Are, are you with me? Is this kind of making sense? Okay, so... Now that we understand that day of the Lord, let's go back to the whole bloody moon thing. What is the deal with the bloody moon? Well, remember, Peter is pulling from a biblical author, the prophet Joel. The prophets were known for using apocalyptic imagery. Apocalyptic imagery was imagery that gave you a sense that the world was ending. And unfortunately, many Christians get obsessed with this imagery instead of keeping their eyes on Jesus. This is a guy named John Hagee. Um, he was a, a preacher from the 80s. And he got obsessed with the whole blood moon thing. Like just, he started writing books about blood moons. He started talking about how, you know, you gotta watch the blood moons because it's gonna show us that, you know, in, in, in the next couple years, we're gonna see Jesus come back and all this crazy stuff would happen. And, and he would make them mean things that they didn't. He would make predictions that didn't come true. Did you know that sometimes the moon does turn red? It's a scientific phenomena. Um, I didn't understand it, so I looked it up. This is uh, Kevin Cahoe, a writer for astronomy.com, um, not astrology, astronomy. He says this, you can credit the Earth's atmosphere with providing an orangish color to the moon during an eclipse. The atmosphere acts as a filtered lens. It bends red sunlight into our planet's shadow and scatters out blue light. It's the same reason why sunrises and sunsets appear reddish. I'm not a science guy, so I still don't kind of get it, but that's the explanation. So, however, just because the Bible mentions a red moon during the time of the, the day of the Lord, does that mean that every time we see a red moon, we should freak out? No, here's an example. The prophet Jeremiah said that Jesus would come riding on what? A donkey, right? So every time we see a donkey, should we freak out? Should we be like, oh, it's a donkey, Jesus is coming back. Like, no, 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 so. Hege, this guy, and guys like him, they spend a lot of time developing Christian conspiracy theories, um, trying to take a focus off Jesus and the mission to go make disciples. Instead of, and instead of focusing on that, they focus on how exactly Jesus is gonna come back. It'd be like if I told you, hey, get ready to go to lunch. I'm gonna pick you up in my car. And instead of like getting ready to go to lunch, you spent all this time obsessing over my car. Like, what kind of car does Aaron drive? Like, what kind of wheels does it have? What kind of transmission, what kind of engine? I don't know much about cars. That's like, what, what kind of washer fluid is he using for the windshield wiper? I don't know. That's not what we're called to do. Um, I love what Chris Katolka says. He's a blogger. He says, there is only one biblical blood moon that will happen in history, and it will shine in the place of a darkened sun and burnt out stars when the Lord judges the world once and for all. So, many blood moons will happen in the world's history, but there is one blood moon that'll happen right around the time when Jesus returns. If we obsess over anything else, it's just a distraction. For instance, like when I was at RBV, at uh, that little cafe, by Rancho Buena Vista School, 
I was studying this passage and I saw a bunch of kids out there and I felt like God wanted me to go invite them to the concert going on Wednesday. And I was like, I can't invite them because I still need to study Blood Moon so I fully understand it. Like I was so, like I got obsessed with it when I was studying it this week. I was like, what does it mean? I need to understand. How does the science work? It, it, it's a distraction. And as you guys get older and go off to other churches and colleges, I wanna warn you, be very careful around anyone who spends more time talking about end times theories than they do about the teachings of Jesus. Yes, the Bible says we should watch and be ready. Yes, there are signs. But don't get involved in what's called newspaper theology, where you like read the news and you're like, oh, like these Russian helicopters are the locusts. It, like, you know, like people do that. Some of you guys don't know because you're young, but the older generation, people get obsessed with end times theology at times. The mission that God gave the church is to preach the gospel. So here's the thing what does it mean? Well, right, here's what it means. Um, skip that. The blood moon, when it happens, what does it mean? Basically, what it means is right before Jesus comes back, or right around the time, something really dramatic is going to happen before the Lord returns. You're gonna see crazy stuff in the sky, and he'll come back. It's the sign of the times. So right before Jesus comes back, things will get really bad here on earth. Um, things are gonna get disastrous. Things are gonna get really hard. The Bible talks about something called a tribulation, which is basically where the world just goes crazy. Like earthquakes, violence, wars, more than we see now. Um, the Bible talks about one third of the entire world's population getting wiped out. And sometimes like I read that and I'm like, man, is God cruel to allow this to happen? Is God like some crazy, judgmental, angry guy in the sky who just wants to destroy people? Not at all. Here's the first thing to understand. The Bible talks about when these things happen. It talks about Jesus coming and taking his church. It's called the rapture. It's this idea that Jesus takes us away from this destruction before it happens to keep the church safe. During the time that all of this destruction happens on earth, Basically, it's the world getting what it had coming to it. All of the sin, all of the violence, all of the destruction. Jesus has waited to come back for thousands and thousands of years. And he showed up and he gave people a son and the gospel. This is the way I think of it. If there's a ship and you've got a captain on a ship, and let's say like we're all on the ship, and then like a bunch of us are like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's drill holes into the bottom of the ship and see what happens. And then the ship starts sinking, right? Like, at that point, the captain could be like, the people on this boat are idiots and they deserve to die. I'm just gonna go swim to shore, right? But the captain doesn't do that. He gets out of the boat, he builds this new boat and says, hey, your boat's sinking, get on my boat. My boat's better. If people stay on the sinking boat and they're like, this boat's wonderful, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with this boat. If they sink, then whose fault is it? Now, I know it's not that simple. I know it's more complicated. I know there's a lot of people out there who don't know about the Lord, and that's why as Christians, we need to go share the gospel. We need to have a heart for people on that sinking ship. We need to go, like, and I struggle with this, guys. I know I talk about how I do evangelism. There's been so many times where I've been sitting there in a coffee shop and I see people walking outside my window and the Lord's like, go share the gospel. And I'm like, I don't have time. Like, seriously, 
And it's just, the, the thing that comes to me is um, that Keith Green song that I quote all the time, which is just, it's called Asleep in the Light. It's talking about how the church, a lot of times, there's so much light in the church. Where it's like, oh, we have, you know, Christian music, Christian t-shirts, Christian camps, Christian conferences. And it's like, we live in this fuzzy, warm, fun, safe Christian bubble. But Keith Green's song goes, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Then he says, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. That's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for our needs. And we just sit back and keep holding it in. And can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. And that just hits me so hard. As a Christian, there's been so many times where I'm asleep in the light. And I'm like, it is more important that I spend time working on this Bible study, making it perfect and having all these slides than it is for me to go and share the gospel. That's wrong. That's wrong. And I'm telling you guys, you have an opportunity. I can't, I can't come to your school and tell people about Jesus. I can like go to a Christian club. Guess who comes to the Christian club? Christians. Maybe sometimes non-believers if there's free pizza. You guys have an opportunity to share the gospel every day. You are, you're in your school for a reason, not just for academics, you're there as a missionary. We need to preach this hope that Jesus is coming back, that he will save people. I noticed something really interesting while researching this passage. Let's go back to the great prophet, Harry Styles. So he says in the first verse of his song, Sign of the Times, which sounds so much like David Bowie, I love it. Um, he says, just stop your crying. It's the sign of the times. This is kind of a thing of like life imitating art or art imitating life um, or art imitating the Bible. Um, they asked Harry, what did you mean by that line in the song? And in his interview in Rolling Stones, he said, um, this is written from the perspective of a mother giving birth. And the mother is told, the child is fine, but you're not gonna make it. And the mother has five minutes to tell the child, go forth and conquer the world. It's a mother who's gonna die in childbirth and she needs to tell her son or her daughter, you've got this. Like just, the, the doctors are saying to the mom, hey, don't stop your, or just stop your crying because those, the pain that you're feeling in your childbirth, it's just the sign of what's gonna happen next. The pain, the contractions, all of that, that is a sign that you're about to give birth to a beautiful baby. And I think it's super profound because the Bible talks about birth pains being the sign of the time that Jesus is going to return. When you go through birth pains, you experience pain, but you know that something new is coming, a new child. Jesus said there's going to be wars, natural disasters. Have any of you guys been following the news? Natural disasters are like crazy right now. There's buildings falling down in Mexico. There's hurricanes in Texas and all over the world right now. There's, in, in, in so many different countries, I can't even keep track. Like every time I turn on the news, it's literally like there's so many things going on right now. Jesus says those things are the signs that he will be returning. And the Bible says in many places that these pains that the world experiences are like a mother who goes through the birth pains. Um, it, it's basically the world groaning 
like a mom about to give birth is screaming. It's the world's crying out because it knows that the new creation is coming. This old world will pass away and the beautiful new world, the new creation will be born into existence when Jesus returns. That's exciting. My sister Amy just gave birth to a beautiful little boy named Josiah. He is so cute and so amazing, but it was a long delivery. We were at the hospital from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m., just waiting and waiting. It was like a five-hour delivery. And that whole time we were waiting and we were nervous and honestly, like as a big brother, I was just like thinking about all the bad things that could happen and like getting emotional about like my sister. Like what if, what if things get wrong? What if there's complications? Like I was so nervous. But there was also this expectation that something beautiful was coming. And it did. This beautiful new baby boy came. Guys, that's what waiting for the Lord to return is like. And as I close up today, I just want to remind you how many of you guys, just in your mind, how many of you guys ever think about how Jesus is coming back? Does anyone here think about that? Yeah? Good. Good. We should. We should desire for Jesus to come back. But I want to remind us to not get lost staring at the sky. Now here, I'm gonna bring you guys back to something we talked about on our first Wednesday night series message on this book of Acts. And that was something that happened in, um, during the time period where Jesus goes back to heaven, the ascension. So I'm gonna read it. So this is Acts chapter one, verse nine through 11. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men, two angels, appeared by them in white apparel. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand up gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like in the manner you saw him go. So they're saying, why are you standing around staring at the sky? I mean, I can't blame them. The like, if you were standing there talking to your friend and like a cloud swooped down, he like hopped in the cloud and flowed away or flew away, you, you would literally just be like, what? <laughs> like, you'd be like, what is going on? My friend just surfed away on a cloud. So it makes sense that they're staring at the sky, but the angels are saying, listen, don't spend your life staring away at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back because he gave you something to do. And we should wait for Jesus to come back. I, I love what Josh White says in his song, um, uh, The Invitation. I love these lyrics. Um, the lyrics are, oh, that you'd come, tear open the sky, that you'd come down. Oh, that the mountains would tremble inside, that you'd come down as fire burns away all the lies. Won't you come down, won't you come down? Your fire brings our soul alive. Jesus, come down. Josh and, and Rachel Cobian sang it at camp and it was just, it was so beautiful. And I remember at that camp, we were just in this place where we were just like waiting for Jesus to show up and it was so beautiful. But listen, we need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the mission. The disciples, they're looking to the sky because they're expecting something earthly. Jesus to return as king, Jesus to defeat the Romans. They, they were looking into the heavens, but they forgot that they had an earthly mission. When I grew up in the church, there was this huge emphasis on the rapture. Jesus taking us away from earth to heaven. And when I grew up, you know, we had all these books about the rapture. We had the Left Behind series. Um, Kurt Cameron was in a movie, Left Behind. We had Left Behind video games. But here's the problem with that stuff. When we take facts, like the belief that the Bible is true, the belief that Jesus is coming back, and we mix it with fiction, we kind of reduce its authenticity. And I've seen it turn into many obsessions. I know many people in my like millennial generation, that's your generation too, our generation, that got tired of it. 
the tired of the constant um, just prophecy stuff. Newspaper theology, like I said, oh, Russian helicopters, it must be the locusts in Revelation 9. Or like kind of this idea of like, we gotta pin the tail on the Antichrist. I remember when I was in high school, it was always like, who's the Antichrist? Is it Obama? Is it Bush? Is it Bono from the band U2? Like literally, I had people saying that. Um, I Just recently, there was people who were like, the rapture's gonna be on September 23 when the planet Nibiru crashes into the earth. Um, there's the whole blood moon thing. Um, I actually read on Facebook, there was a pastor who was looking at some prophecy about Damascus being destroyed one day, and he posted this article online that was about how um, you know, there was war going on in Syria and how there was a big chance that like Damascus could get bombed and wiped out. And his response was like, this is great. This is awesome. This means Jesus is coming back. And like the people in the comments were like, yeah, bring it on, blow up Damascus. And I was just like, what? Like what, what happens when Christians are more excited about a whole city of people dying and there's Christians in Damascus. So you're if you're excited about that, you're excited about your fellow Christians being wiped out because you want to advance some end times timeline. That's not our job. It's not our job as Christians to advance the end times. The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour except Jesus. That's his domain. We wait for him to figure that out. While we're here, we have our orders to preach the gospel, to remind people about Jesus. No one knows the day or the hour, so don't try to predict it. That's what Jesus says, don't try to predict it. Here's an awesome quote from a pastor. He says, our job, people of God, is to show the world the incomparable riches of God's grace. It's not to stare into heaven and try to calculate when Jesus is coming back. Who knows? Jesus might come back tonight, he could. He can come back literally like in two seconds. He could. And if he does, that's amazing. Like, it's like, yes, we're with Jesus, that's fantastic. But, I love he says this, he says, who puts a kettle of water on and then just sits down to watch until it boils? Only people who have nothing better to do. If you're trying to make pasta and you're sitting there staring at the pot and not doing anything else in the kitchen, like, that's sad. You should be making the sauce. You should be making the sauce. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, I was listening to Josh White teach this passage, and he said this. He said, I believe that Jesus will come back when the last person that's supposed to get saved gets saved. And then Josh was saying, he's like, I just wanna be the one that leads them to the Lord. And he was talking about, he was talking to his church, and he's like, imagine this, some teenager walks into the church, and he's like, hey, I wanna get saved, and I pray with them, and then we're all in heaven. And everyone's like, that's my pastor. He prayed with the last person, that's amazing. And I was like, that, that'd be great. I'd love to be the person who prays with the last person. That, that'd be cool. Um, here's a thought though. Are we, is it possible, just a thought, is it possible that we are actually slowing down the return of Jesus because we're not fulfilling the mission to share the gospel? Did you know that I think somewhat 95% of Christians do not ever share their faith? If we were to take a poll in this group of how many of us, myself included, regularly share their faith and invite people to know Jesus and experience him, what would the percentage be? If the mission of the gospel is people getting saved, but the Christian church is more concerned with making their youth group awesome and getting the best smoke machine and lights and band. I would love smoke machines and bands and lights. Don't get me wrong. That, that stuff's great. Like, it's, it's cool. You know, it gets people to come. 
is that the point? Is it to build a little Christian kingdom for yourself where people come and say, oh, your youth group's so cool, your church is so awesome, you have the best singers, your pastor's so, you're preaching, everything's so, is that the point? No, the point is people hearing the gospel and getting saved. Is it possible that we are slowing down the process when we treat church like a buffet that we come to on Sundays saying, I've had a really hard week. God, I just need you to give me something from you because like school's been really hard and Lord, I want you to bless me. Is that why we're here? To get some sort of spiritual blessing? That's a good thing to get, but is that our purpose? Is the purpose of church to just come and get filled up all the time? Guys, what happens if you just keep eating food but you never exercise? You blow up. Guys, I myself, as a Christian, I lived in this Christian environment where literally all I did for years was just get filled up, but I never exercised my faith. And I became a big, chubby Christian in more ways than one. Anyway, <laughs> there's this huge tension in Scripture between God fulfilling his ultimate purpose, no matter what we do, God's sovereign. He's gonna fulfill his purpose no matter what we do. But there's also a huge responsibility that God puts on us humans to serve and, and, and to complete his mission and purpose. God gives us freedom, but unfortunately that means that we not only have the freedom to do what's right, but we also have the freedom to do what's stupid. And when we forget our purpose as missionary people, filled and empowered by a missionary Holy Spirit, we lose sight of what the church is all about. Guys, I want us to live with that mentality, that, that, that person or that classmate, that coworker, that family member, that stranger who doesn't know Jesus, they could be the last one, the last person who needs to hear the gospel before Jesus comes back. Do we think that way? I, before studying for this message, I didn't think that way. And now I'm starting to think it. Like that, that person where God says, hey, stop what you're doing. I know you're exercising or hanging out with your friends or hanging out with your wife, you know, like it's just all this stuff that we do. And God says, I want you to drop everything that you're doing and go just share Jesus. And you don't have to be an amazing speaker. I have seen people get saved and plant churches in other countries and the way they got saved was literally just someone said, hey, I just wanna tell you Jesus loves you and they walked away. If that's all it takes, if it's not being this amazing evangelist, this amazing gifted speaker, if all it takes is us just being obedient to speak when the Holy Spirit tells us to speak, then why aren't we doing it? Guys, let's pray for a passion to witness. We're not, we don't wanna mess around and play Christian games. My class growing up, um, I had about, uh, 35 people in my class, small Christian school. But, you know, we were all pretty close. I'd say 75% of that class is not walking with the Lord anymore. I look at this group, like, is that, is that what it's gonna be? Is that the statistic where 10 years from now, 75% of you are like, yeah, I don't know, this wasn't for me. Maybe the reason so many people walk away from the faith is because they never experience the true power of our faith that happens when we exercise our faith. You know, like if I join a CrossFit gym, but then I never actually do CrossFit, I'm probably not gonna be in that CrossFit gym 10 years from now, right? 
Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? Do you want to experience the Lord? Church is not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about you coming and sitting in the worship and being like, this worship fills my soul with so much happiness and fluffy feelings. Yes, God gives us fluffy feelings, and I love fluffy feelings. <laughs> Seriously, I do. I really love, like, when I'm in worship and I'm like, yes, oh, emotion, the Lord's so great. Oh, like, I, I love that. I, I really do. But it's not the point. He fills us so that we can be poured out. Let's do that.